Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 70. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by the doctor on the podcast, Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hey, Joe. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. Glad to hear it. We were just regaling. We were just d- discussing science songs before we hit record. <laughs> we might have to start singing some of these science songs. Oh, spoiler alert for a future episode of Equinox. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> They're not listening. Didn't I say that before we started? Let's not tell anyone. And you just did. <laughs> well, we didn't give away what the songs are, but it's going to be interesting. Is it fair to say that I can mention that we discussed having a sing-along episode, <laughs> a musical episode of Equinox, and then one yes. thing led to another? And, and if anyone has a request, please send it along, especially something with some scientific subject inside the song. There you go. They're quite rare, actually. Yeah, but, the, but if they exist, there's probably an intriguing reason. So they would be worth discussing on the podcast, if I may say so, in my professional podcaster hosting experience. Very well. Let's find them. All right. So speaking of science topics, Rob, have you done anything? Have you been writing anything? Any new experiments? Anything at all? Well, let's just say that I downloaded 1.4 SARS-CoV-2 genomes last Friday, and I worked all weekend on them. Okay. Some light reading. Yeah, just because. Well... I found out that I have an opportunity to get a paper published finally through a good connection. Excellent. And we decided to take this paper we've been working on for well over a year and retask it. Not talk about the history of it. Talk about the future of it. Oh. So based on everything we've seen happening in the virus to date, where will it be in 10 years? So we're going to future cast coronavirus. Brilliant. I actually love this idea. Yeah. So that's why I needed 1.4 million sequences. And um, let's see. I'll tell you how big this this file is. I got it. Oh, I can't. It's not plugged in. I'm, I put it on my spare drive because... Um, it's just that big. Yeah, gigabytes of data. I didn't want to put it on my hard drive on my, my laptop. Hmm. So what we're going to do is we're going to cut to the chase because we have a lot more to discuss about the history and science of computing. Yes. And uh, I'm happy to hear that you're working on that excellent paper, though. You're going to have to give us more reports in the future, but... Uh, I'm assuming right now it's just kind of in the beginning phase. Well, we've, we've got it written. We just have to change significant parts, draw some new graphs. And basically, I, I need a time series throughout the entire pandemic. I need slices, one-month slices of what's happening in the virus during that month. So we can say, okay, this is the trend. This is where it's going. Mm. I probably even shouldn't say that out loud because, you know, science is secret, right? Yeah, it takes the idea. Hmm. Yeah, because all of these other geneticists listen to our show. <laughs> I'm sure they do. <laughs> I'm not sure if they do in this universe, but I'm sure they do in some universe. <laughs> Although I, I really cannot picture brainy science people really paying attention to the media. I figure that their nose is stuck in the books. They're always uh, wait, pouring wait, wait, wait. over... Wait, wait. Who is the brainiest science type person in our office? Don't say the name out loud. Yes. Young person. Big fan of our show. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, you know who you are. JB. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then there's the other one, JT. And he's interested in these things. He, he keeps up with the times. Oh, that's right. And he listens that's to right. the podcast too. Do we have all the J's? No, the other, the, the JS person, I don't think, listens to podcasts. So he should. We have a lot of J's at the office. We've got JT, JD, JB, JJ, J, uh, JF, probably a few others I'm overlooking. You memorize this because your name starts with a J. <laughs> uh-huh. 
Yeah, it's what we do. With the Jays unite. That's funny. It's like my uh, three best, not three best friends, my three good friends in high school. We're all in Boy Scouts together. We're all named Rob. Oh, and when really? I when I went to Georgia Tech, I joined a fraternity. There were three other Robs in the fraternity. <laughs> And then my little brother the next year was also a Rob. It's like, ah, I can't escape Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, all those common names. And when I met my wife, that was one of the wonderful things about her name was that it was just so uncommon. Amber. It's just, But her last name is super common. <laughs> Smith. So That would do it. Yeah, I don't know any other Ambers. I just hear about them in passing, but I don't really know any. I, I know a few, but not many. Interesting. Yeah. So, getting back to the, the computer science, yes, and where we left off, you had described a lot of the building blocks going back to the 19th century for computers. Yes. Ah, just fascinating stuff. And the fact that computers were built or at least written down on paper before they could be manufactured and computer programs were being written before they even had a computer to put them on. Incredible. Oh, it's so cool. Like, I watched a little bit of a... TV show that came out a few years ago called Halt and Catch Fire. Yeah, I watched I watched the first season of that, skipping over, you know, rolling through the adult type things because I'm an adult and it really doesn't bother me that much. But the second season, it's just like, this is dumb. <laughs> okay, because yeah, the first season was intriguing and I, I actually just never got around to continuing. But I did enjoy the historical drama aspect of it. Yeah. And then they have the films like Steve Jobs and Pirates of Silicon Valley and when you watch that stuff, you get, might get the impression, oh, maybe also watch the, what is it called? The Intuition Game with Benedict Cumberbatch. You just get the impression there's actually not a whole lot to talk about for the beginning. The, the uh, Imitation uh, Game. Imitation, yeah, okay. Yeah, the Imitation Game about the um, Bletchley Park codebreakers breaking World War II codes from Germany. Yeah. But that's all based on, I mean, primitive technology that is so remotely ridiculous compared to today that we might not well not even talk about it i think i was thinking about a there's actually another film that's called intuition that came out last year for some reason i got it mixed up with that it doesn't look like it has anything to do with computers or science so yeah anyway imitation game okay and the reason that stuff is is so passe compared to today yeah is because of one particular invention an invention that was thought of in the 1920s and finally, finally, finally came to fruition in 1947, right after the end of World War II. And it is called the transistor. This is, we'll see, the first episode of the show, greatest scientific theory ever, right? We talked about the law of gravity. Several months ago, we talked about the greatest effect ever. The, um, the idea that electrons flowing through a wire protect, uh, create magnetic fields and vice versa. This is the greatest invention ever. Bar none, the most manufactured product in human history. And it is a transistor. So transistor is one of those pieces of the puzzle, one of those devices that I hear thrown out. And I, I really don't understand what they are. Um, well, I'm, gonna, I'm going mm -hmm. to attempt to explain it in layman's terms. And one reason for that is I don't understand the technical descriptions. I've been studying this for decades. I've wow. taught this. But they talk about whole flow instead of electron flow. What? <laughs> That's a, yeah. Is, is this like when there are, is unique lingo to a particular industry? They would call it whole flow? 
Yes, but it also might be that that computer scientists being so smart can't handle negative numbers. And so they talk about current flow, even though the electrons go in the other direction. Oh, right. Okay. Going back to Ben Franklin, who said, well, there's got to be something I'm calling electricity. So I'll say that electricity's here and non-electricity is there. And he got it backwards. So his positive node actually was the one that had lack of electrons and the negative node was the one that had the electrons. He had to guess. Right. At least that's the that's how I've had it explained to me. And ever since then, I, I know we've described this before on Equinox, but you know, you, you draw a computer circuit. You start at a battery or a switch and the wire has to go through all your stuff and come back again. Well, instead of drawing the lead all the way back, often you just draw a line and make a crow's foot. And that's ground. Ground, you know, just like on your car, your, your car battery, one of the terminals is strapped to the body of the car. That's ground. And so when your radio, you only need one wire that goes to the radio. And you just screw the radio to the body of the car and it's grounded. It's one side is connected to the battery through the body of the car. The problem is that's where the electrons come from. <laughs> <laughs> we call it grounding, but it's, it's the electrons are flowing through the body, through the radio, and then back to the battery. Not because, but see, we like to talk about positive flow instead of negative flow. Right. Anyway, so, all right, going back to transistor though. We ended off last week talking about vacuum tubes. And the cool thing about a vacuum tube is it is a switch. You can turn it on, you can turn it off. So if you have a wire, you have a th- uh, the wire is broken at the switch, you have a third wire that comes in from the side, and when you run electricity through that third wire, it closes the switch and electricity can flow through your vacuum tube. And that does one of several things. You can have a little bit of current switching a lot of current. Or you can have a little voltage switching a lot of voltage. So you can use it for power distribution and signaling, which you can also have it as a memory test. You can have it in the on position or the off position. On represents one, off represents zero. And now we have binary mathematics. So um, without that device, we would have no computers. Without this binary switch thing, it just we just wouldn't. It would be impossible to have a computer. But... The vacuum tube draws a lot of power, produces a lot of heat, and they don't last very long. So scientists were desperately seeking a replacement, and they went esoteric. They went weird. They went, what? Why? Who? Huh? They started using germanium crystals, but crystals don't conduct electricity. (laughs) (laughs) So this is like, was this because people used to think that crystals had properties that we would discover no use for scientific purposes that well, beyond oh, yeah, our imagining yeah. yeah yeah yes and no i mean they knew it would do weird things and what they figured out and this is the secret this happened in 1947 after 10 years of work in fact the guy working on it never figured it out so bell labs where this was invented pulled two other guys in and they built it and the first guy got real jealous even though these three guys are on the Nobel Prize in 1956. So, hey, our annual Nobel Prize episode's coming up next month or two. We just talked about that today. But basically what they realize is if you put two wires very close together on a germanium crystal and you try to run electricity through those wires, it won't work. But if you take a third wire and run electricity to the to a third wire, It'll electrify the crystal and electrons will flow through the crystal from one terminal to the other. So now you can turn the thing off by stopping power or turn it on by sending power. So that third lead is, is, is critical. 
you have something called a gate, and the gate is the switch part. You electrify the gate, and the sink and the source wires, electrons will flow through them. De-electrify the gate, and it, the signal stops. Now, they're lousy. The first ones were terrible. It took them longer than you would think to commercialize it, longer than you think to make them stable. They just were awkward, mysterious, weird things were happening, especially when they tried to switch to silicon. I was like, what is this? Sometimes it works, sometimes it wouldn't. They did not yet have the physics to explain what's happening to electrons in an electric field inside a crystal or on the surface of a crystal. Hmm. And different things are happening on the surface versus the inside. And they're like, this is such a pain in the neck. Yeah. But they kept pursuing it. And there's some magic there. And I don't know what that magic is. I don't know why they pursued that and not something else. But they kept pushing it. And they kept pushing. So, 1920s, some people patented basically the transistor, but they never built it. So, 1947, Bill Labs. This is uh, William Shockley, John Bardeen, and Walter Bratton. Or Bratain. It looks like Britain with an A. B-R-A-T-T-A-I-N. So, however you pronounce that guy's name. The first thing they built, they were able to amplify the, the amperage. So, if you sent uh, one amp to your crystal, you could drive a 3.3 amp current. Ooh, but that's amplification. And so, you could use a smaller current to switch a larger current. But the, the difference wasn't very big. But they did get a 15 times voltage gain. So, they could use a 5 volt current to switch a... 15 times 5, a 75 volt current. And that was cool because now you're talking about switching high voltages. You're controlling things. You're, you're losing. It's like um, mm -hmm. how much force does it take to switch your light switch on your wall? Not much at all. Assuming you have the old toggle type, not the new electronic ones, right? It, it's really, I mean, it's trivial. Yeah. The trivial little force can turn on 110, 120 volt current of multiple amps. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. Have you seen the um, those videos on YouTube where um, they're at like some high high power station and they flip a, uh, one of those big old um, what are those called? Knife switches that like shaped like a U with a big handle in it. Yeah, they're really thick and they like go. <laughs> yeah, when you yeah, flip, and you flip see this, on. just this lightning go yeah, between the. Like the switch and the thing when the guy's pulling it down and finally it stops. Yeah, that's what you would expect. You need a lot of force. <laughs> but a light switch is a tiny little bit of force. Now, that's why this is cool. This is why a transistor is so important because a smaller amount of voltage can control a larger amount of voltage. It's just a switch. But the vacuum tubes were not good enough. The first transistors were not good enough. But man, they demonstrated a proof of principle. And they said, okay, how can we improve this? Eventually, they would switch from germanium to silicon, but only after they realized that pure silicon does not conduct electricity. Imperfect silicon does. They would dope the silicon with just a few impurities, and that would allow electricity to flow through the silicon wafer under certain conditions. Hmm. Wow. I mean, this is, this, is, this is some magic sauce happening. Yeah. <laughs> there is millions of man hours of experimentation going on in laboratories all over the world as people are trying to crack this problem. How do we make a low power switch? And the switch has to be small and it has to be stable and it has to be cheap. So they turned to sand. Silicon comes from sand. One of the things they realized pretty early on was that pure silicon 
will turn to silicon dioxide on the outside. It will oxidize. And well, silica sand is not a conductor. And you can have different properties of conductance on the outside of your wafer versus the inside. And they said, oh, so now they, they're treating the silicon and they're you know not exposing it to oxygen, doing all this stuff as they're in the, the manufacturing process. And that was a huge realization that helped tremendously to switch to silicon because germanium is more expensive. Silicon is, I mean, literally silicon dioxide. Yeah. That's a huge portion of the Earth's crust. Really? Oh, huh. Quart- and quartz. We have quartz everywhere. Sand, any sandy beach, that's silicon dioxide. Okay. Huh. So super cheap, especially there's some places in the world that have really high quality silicon dioxide sand. And those have been targeted by the semiconductor industries and they're very important. So now we have silicon and we have crystals, even though the crystals don't conduct electricity sort of, but impure ones do. And you have this thing called the field effect, where if you energize the outside of a crystal, electrons can flow through the crystal. And that's the gene. It's called a field effect transistor. You have a little bit of voltage on the outside and that'll allow electricity flow through the inside. And that's where the switch came from. I don't pretend to understand really how that works. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy to understand. Yeah. Uh, no, especially because they, they talk about holes and hole flow. And my brain goes, Eric, what are you talking about, you silly engineers? Why don't you talk like a scientist? <laughs> so they talk past me and it drives me bonkers. And maybe just because I'm too pedantic. Um, and that's why I won't allow myself really to understand it. But basically, that's how it works. Simple switch based on melted sand. Wow. So a vacuum tube had something called transconductance. It would conduct electricity from one end to the other, trans, if you energized it in the middle. Well, transistor stands for trans resistance because silicon is a resistor. And trans comes from when you energize the middle part, electricity will flow through it. I think there's not really any difference. I think it should still be called transconductance also. But, you know, Bell engineers, and they just wanted to name something, so that's what they came up with. Hmm. And so, transistor, that's where it comes from. Okay, try to take a guess. Uh-huh. Not looking at the notes. All right. Think of it. Bell Labs. Where do you think the first commercial application for transistor technology was used? Mm. Bell Labs. You don't, you don't remember Ma Bell, do you? No, I mean, I... You don't remember the baby bells. Do you remember the baby bells? No. <laughs> Back in the, I think it was the 80s, the U.S. government trust busted Bell Technologies or whatever it was called, and they broke Bell up into multiple regional Bells. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I, I knew that happened. I didn't realize they called it the Baby Bells. Yeah, the Baby Bells. But Ma Bell, everyone called it Ma Bell. Um, they were the dominant um, telecommunications company in the U.S., and the government forced them to break up. And I bet the people who own Bell made a killing on it. Just like when they trust busted Rockefeller, he made more money in his broken up empire than he ever did when it was a unified empire. <laughs> wow. But you know, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just going to guess because I, I really wouldn't know. I'm going to say the fifties, but yes, but what is actually 1952 really telephone switching circuits. Oh, okay. I was much closer than I would have thought. Yeah. I could have played a little bit of trivia tonight. Yes. Well, it's a whole lot better than having a radio saying, yes, who would you like to call? Okay. Right. Pennsylvania 65000, very well. And she, you know, puts a, a cable into a hole and a board in front of her. That's not. Yeah, no. No, no. That, that had to go away. 
We had to get rid of those jobs. We had to standardize and optimize, make it faster and automatic. And this is what the transistor allowed. All right. Mm-hmm. Take another guess. When was the first transistor radio? Okay. Um, I'll give you a hint. Texas Instruments made it. Oh. Well, I'm guessing it would be the 50s too. Yes. You want me to be more specific. Okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go Back with... To the waterfall with you. You know, the, you know, brown-eyed girl? Brown-eyed girl. It went down to the waterfall of the transistor radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that was impossible before 1955. Okay, wow. Actually, 1954. And in today's dollars, it costs the equivalent of about $300. But it used printed circuit boards. Ooh, yeah, man. That was high tech. <laughs> I, I'm just going to estimate that it came a few years later. So I'm, I'm going to say probably 55. It could be 56. I'm going to say 55. Well, 55 was the first time a transistor radio was offered in a car. Oh, okay. Two different models of Chrysler for $150 extra. We'll put a radio in your car. Okay. Then. Huh. I'll, I'll it's, it's, that. it's hard to imagine. I mean, cars before 55 didn't have radios. No, it's very difficult to imagine. And most of the cars, even after that, didn't have radios. That was the first year they were, and it was only in two models. What? I mean, I'm thinking all these 1950s shows with the poodle skirts and the, you know, happy days. Well, yeah, they weren't listening to music in their car. (laughs) 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 Never thought of that before. Yeah. And then something happened. And then something happened. Well, an engineer who worked for a particular company in Japan was in the United States. And he found out that Bell Labs was offering for tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to license transistor technologies for radios. Mm. Take a guess of what this huge future multinational corporation was going to be. 1957, this company came out with a 9-volt so-called pocket transistor radio. And a monster was born. Um. Well, it wasn't Radio Shack. Um, no, and it wasn't Atari. Sony? No. Sony, uh, yes, exactly. Are you serious? Yes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> they, they went from a, a little company to a monster because they came out with, well, another company had come out with a, a transistor radio a couple of years earlier, and they produced them, and it, was, it wasn't as good, and it used like a 27-volt battery. What is that? But the Sony one used a standard 9-volt battery. And they marketed it as a pocket radio, but didn't fit in anybody's pocket. <laughs> the pocket, the pocket of like a big dresser drawer. Well, someone, someone, I, I read this on Wikipedia. They said that they had manufactured clothing with big pockets to put the thing into it, looked like it would fit in your pocket. Yeah, that's how you do it. Yeah, cargo <laughs> pants, stinkers. <laughs> uh, all right, now we know that we have vacuum tube computers. Take a guess when the first transistor computer came out. This was not marketed. This was made by a graduate student, I think, in England. So from what I know, rough information, I'm going to say it was the 60s. Um, No, no, no. Ten years earlier. Really? It was 1953. Okay, neat. But then IBM comes out with a computer, 1958 transistor computer, 23,000 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) Pounds. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> it had a terminal. It had a TV-like oh. terminal with a little keyboard. Ooh, but there's a 23,000-pound monster behind What? 
<laughs> no way. <laughs> and you can imagine <sighs> that it had, I mean, almost no power. I mean, I'm no. trying to think of what, what device in my house would have less computing power. Even my, my remote control for my TV is more computing power. My old printer that I haven't used in forever. I mean, every single thing I'm looking at is more computing power than that. <laughs> Maybe not the clock, <laughs> but I don't think that, that battery power clock, I don't think it's, no, but it's got a chip in there somewhere. I don't know. Just wow. Nah, weird. Okay. And then a new invention is called the MOSFET. Mm. We've already talked about transistors and field effect transistors, but this is a metal oxide semiconductor field effect transistor, a MOSFET. We just call them transistors. 1959. This was the thing the world was waiting for. Low power, small. Well, they cut the, the, the poundage in half and it was 10,000 oh, yeah. pounds. Oh, yeah. Very stable. Mm. It allowed the first manufacturing of something called an integrated circuit, or in modern phrase, a computer chip. 1964 at 120 transistors. So 100 trans, 120 transistors in something probably about as big as your thumb and maybe a quarter inch thick. I mean, how, I mean, think of that just 20 years earlier, actually 10 years earlier, 1949, 1945, 120 trans, uh, vacuum tubes would have been the size of a refrigerator. And you just reduce that <laughs> to something that's, you know, not bigger than your thumb and very thin. Wow. Uh, here's, a, here's a quote from, again, Wikipedia. Not that I use Wikipedia for all my research, but I, I do consult it because there's some interesting and useful information sometimes. Mm -hmm. They said, the MOSFET has since become the most widely manufactured device in history. As of 2018, an estimated total of 13 sextillion MOS transistors have been manufactured. Wow. I mean, how, many, how, many, how much RAM do you have in your computer? Third, well, I, this one I have 16. The, the one at the office has... 16 what? 32 gigabytes. Gigabytes. Billion bytes. Yeah. That's 32 billion MOSFETs. No, times eight. Because a byte is eight, eight bits. Each bit being one transistor. Now, some computer scientists might challenge me on that, but it's my basic understanding of it. A bit is a switch, one or zero, controlled by a little gate and a little bit of current and allows this to happen. Now, looking in the notes, I included a... Uh, uh, an image that I don't see at the moment. I don't know where it went. Did it move down? I, I did. I have three images there. And I have the, the, the next line is the caption. Where'd the image go? Oh, All right, let's see if I can go find it. it. I wanted to show you. Yeah, I could probably just hit back. Moore's Law is dead. We're getting there, everybody. This whole, this whole thing here was because I wanted to talk about Moore's Law. Nice. Okay, let's it do is. it. Wait, wait, wait. Copy image. I'm going to drop in the notes for you. Where'd the notes go? Here's the notes. Boom. Okay. See that weird thing there? Yes. Okay. That is a MOSFET. We have G, a gate. Notice that the gate connects two things that look kind of metallic. Yeah. And, and just to- You're actually silicon, but- Just to, to help people understand, it looks like um, they're using you know children's wooden blocks and you have one rectangle, this shape of a brick. And then on top of that, what looks like two gray rails that fit the dimensions yes. of the brick- on top of that, what looks like uh, it's one solid white flat rectangle that you're calling the gate with a black rectangle on top of it, which from this angle just looks more like a rooftop, but we're, we're calling that the gate, and that's G? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
And notice how, we'll see now we have an S and a D. That's a source and the drain. Yeah, the rails. Again, my brain doesn't go here because it's not the source of the electrons. It's the source of the holes. (laughs) 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 The hole between the source and drain. No, the holes that are the things the electrons flow into as they're flowing the opposite direction. Uh, The holes are flowing. Right. (laughs) So there's, there's a base and the base is just an insulator. And there's these two conductive things that are separated by the gate. And if you just electrify a little teeny bit, a little bit of power to that gate, electricity will start flowing between the source and the drain. And if you stop electrifying the gate, the electricity will keep on flowing. So you can turn it on and leave it on. You don't have to continually energize it to keep it flowing. At least that's true, at least in a power MOSFET. I'm assuming it's true in these very small computer chippy things. So they use very little current. They're really simple and they're really stable. And this is what has exploded on the scene. So once you have a MOSFET, now you have an integrated circuit. Once you have an integrated circuit, you can make a microprocessor. You can build a computer on a chip. You can have clusters of electronic components, mainly MOSFETs, on a chip that that you can tell it what to do. Hey, count this, subtract that, multiply, divide. So they, initially there's chips that do that, and then they combine them all together, and now you can program this thing. I mean, it's like programming a, 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 um, a computer that was the size of a warehouse 30 years earlier, now fits on a chip. Wow. From there, we have electronic calculators. Now, you know, young people today don't even know what an electronic calculator is. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, my dad in the 60s in engineering, he learned a slide rule. I, he taught me once how to use a slide rule. I don't remember. I know the veneer scale on uh, some calipers I've had to use is very slide rule-like, but I, I, I never had to because I had a calculator. And then when I was in graduate school, they came out with graphing calculators. Mm-hmm. I actually had a calculator. I programmed a chess game for my calculator. Now it didn't. It wasn't smart, but if you hit the cursor button, you could go over one of the pieces and hit enter. It would pick it up, and you could move it and drop it somewhere else. So two people could play chess. I was very proud of that. But now you have calculators. You have home computers. I dropped another picture on the on the end, the very end. This looks very similar to my yeah. mother's home computer. We nice. were one of the first people that I ever knew that had a computer at home. It was a K-Pro 4. It had two five and a quarter floppy drives and a little teeny green and white screen and a clunky keyboard. Yeah. And the keyboard snapped across the screen and the bottom of the keyboard was a handle. And it weighed like 26 or 30 pounds and you could you know, theoretically carry it. Yeah, c- because to look at the thing, it would look like a, well, maybe some sort of like a small suitcase made of plastic. Yeah. And it would maybe handles on top, but it would be very bulky and weighty, just just heavy on all sides. It kind of cumbersome to carry. Oh, yeah, totally. It, it wasn't it wasn't something that you put, you know, no. you carried around with it, but you could move it from one room to the other. Put it in your car and drive it somewhere. And then you snap the latches off or open up the latches and then you open up the base, which becomes the keyboard. And the inside of the case housing is where you got your screen and your floppy drives. Wow. I cannot tell you how many hours I spent on that computer. Really? What were you doing? A little bit of word processing, but writing games, playing games. 
Um, it came with a game, which was a stock trading game in space. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> and something like, you know, every once in a while, your stock would split two to one. I was like, oh, ho, ho, I'm becoming a millionaire. You have to buy stocks and you lose money and gain money. And I have no idea how it worked, but I, I enjoyed that a lot. And I will never play that game again, I'm sure. Nice. But the picture is um, that computer sitting next to an iPhone. Yeah, the first generation iPhone, probably. Uh, yeah. Well, or maybe. I don't know exactly. But the power difference between those two things. <laughs> Give me a break. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> Let's see. The, the caption was... No, the, no comparison to any kind of computers today. In 1982, it was a Zilog Z80 4 megahertz and a 2007 Apple iPhone with 412 megahertz. Yeah. The computer has 100 times the weight and 500 times the volume and 10 times the cost after you adjust for inflation and one one hundredth of the of the clock speed. And that's only, I mean, within half, oh, not near, less than half of my lifetime, that's what happened. Okay. So we got all this stuff happening. We have computers are starting to come on. Microprocessors are starting to get small. We're having all these amazing things happen. And then literally two weeks to talk about, I only want to talk about Moore's Law. And here's Moore's Law. This guy, Moore, writing an article in a magazine in 1965. He said, hey, you know what? The number of transistors on a single chip has been doubling. I, I bet it's going to double every two years. So 10 years from now, he made a prediction. He was spot on. And we invented this thing called Moore's Law. And it's basically that people say the computer powering doubles every two years. No, it, it's the number of transistors you can fit on a chip doubles every two years. It's a miniaturization of the computer chip. Because the smaller your transistors are, the closer together they are, which means that you can send signals between them faster, which allows you to have faster CPUs. You have to have, because you know electricity only flows a certain speed through a wire. And if you don't want to have data collisions on your wire and, and crosstalk and things like that, you need really short wires, which means you need your computer parts to be really close together. And so by doubling, assuming the chip's about the same size, you're just getting faster and faster computers with more and more memory. And he made that prediction in 1965. That held true through the 70s, through the 80s, through the 90s. I mean, I remember when Pentium processes were first coming out. One of the kids at um, where I was teaching it was a prep school. His dad bought him a $1,500 computer. And in 1993, that was a whole lot of money. And it was probably a Pentium 2. <laughs> maybe, maybe it was, might have been a... Actually, no, it wasn't. No, 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 no. It was probably a 3D6 or a 4D6. I mean, I can't believe how slow and how clunky that thing was. It had a color screensaver. <laughs> <laughs> Did it just cycle through colors? <laughs> um, no, it was actually a little, a little guy walking around and he... He was marooned on an island. Oh, yeah. And he would okay. just sit there, and then something would float by, and he'd pick it up. And eventually, he chops down the tree and sails away. But I think he floats back again. I don't remember. It's just like never-ending cycle of a guy stuck on a, stuck on a little island, a little cartoon. But if um, I have a more detailed uh, Moore's Law graph on the next page, it fills up the whole page. Yeah. And it's got, I don't know, looks like about 100 different microprocessors. But you can see it's very linear. From the 70s, 80s, all the way through up to 2020, it's been very linear. We're wow. doubling the amount of – we're, we're halving the space between transistors. We say it that way every two years. Now, 
there's a physical limit to this because once you get down to the size of an atom, you can't have it anymore, right? <laughs> right. So people have been predicting the death of Moore's law for a long time. And several years ago, like, oh, no, no. To have a doubling every two years is a 40% per annum decrease. Well, we only hit 30% last couple of years, so Moore's law is broken. Moore's law is dead. But still, 30% is awfully close to 40%. I mean, it's not really dead. We're just slowing down a little bit. And then some new technological innovation comes along and we're back on track again. And we're talking about quantum computers. Wow. You know, uh, computers that can almost think for themselves. I mean, computer processing power is going to continue to go way up and up and up and up and up. Even if we do reach some physical limits in the amount of transistors we can fit on the chip, Moore's law still rules so far. <sighs> that is so cool. So that's as far as I wanted to go today. Mm -hmm. That was a, a two-part history of the computer. And I think we ended up in a pretty good place there. There's so many other things we could talk about and so many other places we could go. But now we kind of know what a computer is, right? Yeah. Well, then we have a couple of moments to spare. I'll have a question or two for you. Yeah, good. I was hoping you would. So the earliest computers, what was your favorite school computer that you had in your early years? Oh man, the uh, Commodore sixty four, duh. Mm -hmm. We also we had um, that one. That one gets thrown out a lot. So, can you tell us a little bit more about it for the younger people in the audience? Best computer ever, bar none. No joke. Competitors at the time were like the TRS eighty. Uh, there were some Apple, maybe Apple two E. I don't remember Apple something or other. Never really liked those. I did take a um, a Pascal programming course in my senior year of high school that used those computers, but it was just, it wasn't the same. They had the pet computers, Commodore pet computers. But when a Commodore 64 hit, you had two different sound channels. You had 256 uh, different colors. Any game you could imagine. I mean, Centipede, Pac-Man, Battleship sort of games, you name it. It was there. And at the end, you could buy a hard drive, a five meg hard drive for like five grand. <laughs> megs wow i upgraded from a cassette tape drive where i mean if i wanted to play centipede it would take five minutes to load centipede or longer actually i upgraded to a floppy drive a five and a quarter floppy which i had to plug into the computer so it was outside the computer and then centipede only take maybe three minutes to load <laughs> <laughs> wow a friend and i my friend went on to have a, a a career in computers. He was way beyond me in his understanding of computers. We programmed a game where the Commodore 64, it had these things called sprites. And it was a simple, it was almost object oriented. It was really, really interesting. It was an eight by eight array, eight bytes actually. And you could turn each bit on to whatever color you wanted. So we made a little guy who would run and jump and fall and swim and each one of those actions was a different sprite. Left, right, you'd have to change up and down. So depending on what he was doing, and you could toggle, you could cycle between, like if you want to run, we were standing still, one where his right leg is forward and one where his, his right leg is all the way forward and his left leg was back. And by cycling between those three, it would look like he's going left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, and he could run or climb or do whatever. And it was just amazing. It just the, the fact that we were, we were doing stuff like that and, in the 80s. Yeah. It was just amazing. And, and, oh, and it was also user-friendly. They had the programmer's reference guide, which in the back had a fold-out schematic of the 
blueprints for the computer. Nice. So you could trace the wires. You could look at all the components. I was looking at this and I noticed that the CPU had an RST line. Well, that stands for reset, but no wire is connected to it. So I said, what happens if you short that out? So I took a soldering iron. I melted a hole in the side of my computer. I installed (laughs) a a little red push button switch. I connected one wire to ground and the other wire. I I literally soldered a wire onto the CPU of my computer. (laughs) I didn't know about heat sinks. I didn't fry it, but I I shouldn't have done that. I should have clipped something on there to keep me from anyway, clip the heat sink on there. I didn't do it. And if I push that button, my computer would reset and reboot. So all my friends had me do that. And I, I installed like five of them. <laughs> cool. Good times. Um, this is also the, the computer where my, my parents bought me a color printer. <laughs> a color printer, man. Dot matrix printer on the old, the paper that's, um has the holes on the side and has like the tank drive. Yeah. The, yeah. And, and is all connected. It's perforated. So you have to peel your sheets off. I did all my, my senior year uh, reports on that. They bought me this color printer and I figured out, it took me a long time. I figured out how to take this display screen on my computer and print it to a color printer. It would take 20 minutes, but I could do it. And so that was my first computer. I loved it. I said, well, my, my mom had that K-Pro 4, but that wasn't mine. And I didn't get to sit on it all day long and experiment with it. So that's my long soliloquy on my my favorite. Wow. I just remember those printers being so loud. Crank, crank, crank. Yep. yep. Lots of... I remember, no, this is no joke. I did not have a computer because I fried my Commodore 64 building a robot arm. That's another story. I did not have a computer when I went to Georgia Tech. No one had... There's no cell phones, no personal computers. My third year there, I was now living in my fraternity house and my big brother had a computer with a printer dot matrix printer but when it printed left and right it didn't quite line up right so if you printed like a capital l it would have a it'd be you go down and then go to left one dot and then go down and go to the right one dot (laughs) (laughs) all all the letters are wavy you couldn't you can print a straight line it'd be a wavy line yep but one of my lab mates senior year at georgia tech i was working my tail off in my bacterial physiology lab and I, I was spending hours doing my lab reports. And she said, yeah, we're only getting A's because you have a computer. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, it took me three hours to figure out how to draw a 3D bar graph. Oh, it's I, I worked harder on this lab than you did, girl. But I didn't say that. I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So if you could pick the ideal computer, would you rather have something that was retro or do you just like computers the way that they are today and where they're going? Is there anything retro about computers that you prefer to what computers are today? No. Could new, could new computers learn anything from what hardware used to be? No, I can think back and just, you know, love these memories of these old computers, but there's not, there's no comparison. The screen the crispness, how fast things load, how stable they are. I mean, I don't get the blue screen of death anymore. Even up through, you know, Windows 3.1, those those computers are horrible. And trying to network on Windows 3.1, oh, pull my hair out. I networked my uh, my uh, in graduate school. I networked the lab, and it was it was just 
It was impossible. The computers wouldn't talk to each other. And I was just, it was insane. Anyway, we figured it out eventually. <laughs> um, but I just hated it the whole time. And then Windows would upgrade Windows 95 and Windows ME. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 no, I, um, I don't want to go back. Everything is so stable and so brilliant and beautiful now and fast. Awesome. But I would, if I sat down on the Commodore 64, I would play a game on it just because. I have looked at a few computer exhibits and museums. Those have been really fun. <laughs> just out, just like, uh, uh, I don't want to say an out of body experience because I was clearly just looking at a machine under glass, but seeing something like that with the naked eye and realizing this is a real piece of history, but it's like, it's like my computer, but it isn't. It's so old. <laughs> now, children, this ancient piece of technology was a computer when I was a child. Now it's a brick. Right. <laughs> the same goes for the computers I was using too, but not quite as old as yours. I have a hard time explaining to our kids what a, a cassette tape was, let alone a computer. Wow. Wow. And the, the absolute terror when you'd be listening to something and you heard it start going, like, no, it's eating the tape. Eject, yeah. eject. No. <laughs> Quickly, just like, even if you had to just like grab the cassette deck and yank it out of the wall, you throw it across the room, whatever it took to stop it from eating the tape. <laughs> Better to lose the deck than to lose the tape sometimes. But, you know, there's such an overlap with some of this technology, too. I mean, one of my friends in high school, he had a, a pocket CD player. He, had, he needed big pockets for it, but he, he carried that thing all the time. He was always listening to music constantly on his headphones. But I didn't give up cassette tapes until, I don't know, 2010? Because I had them. Yeah. And, yeah. and I had an old car. My old car had a cassette dry, a cassette tape deck. So, you know, hey, I got it. And then my next car had a CD thing. And I was like, ooh, I can listen to CDs. So I started getting CDs. And then I, I still have CDs. In fact, my, my, every time I get in the car, my daughter picks out a CD from my sleeve and pops it in the CD drive. Nice. We listen to the police on our last drive. And, you know, Michael W. Smith hymns and the soundtrack from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, she doesn't want to listen to Rush. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but now there's Spotify and all those other things. So, yeah, it, it's actually kind of cool that music is such an easy part of life today. And free. I mean, you just get on YouTube and you pull up a playlist and let it go in the background. Yeah. So, no, I don't want to go back. Wow. But, but I like to reminisce. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us on this discussion. If you want to be awesome, you can share this podcast with others you know that enjoy technology, computers, or sciences. And you could also find links to anything that Rob mentioned in the show notes with this episode. Get those with this episode in your podcast app or on our website. It'll be available at nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 70. And you can get more of our content if you want to join Equinox Plus membership on Patreon. And do check out Biblical Genetics, which is Rob's other project, his YouTube show content, and join in the discussions from YouTube or biblicalgenetics.com or Facebook page. And if you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You've been listening to Equinox.